0: The American Institute of Indian Studies was founded 60 years ago to further the knowledge of India in the United States by supporting American scholarship on India. The programs of AAAS foster the production of and engagement with scholarship on India and promote and advance mutual understanding between the citizens of the United States and of India. AAAS seeks to provide access to scholarship about India to a wide and diverse audience. Welcome to the October 2022 episode of the American Institute of Indian Studies special 60th Anniversary Podcast Series. My name is Anandi Silva-Kanapal, and I'm the Strategic Initiatives and Project Specialist for AAAS. This year, we've been celebrating a history of scholarship in and through AAAS, exploring the narratives within the walls of the Institute and the conversations that have happened thanks to the support of AAAS. Today, we turn from history to current research that highlights collaboration and co-creation, a foundational piece of what makes AWS the American Institute of Indian Studies. The following interview is taken from a webinar that took place virtually on October fourth, 2022, and is part one of two webinars this fall featuring India-US collaboration and AWS. Now I'm thrilled to turn things over to the President of AAAS, Sumathi Ramaswamy, to introduce our guests. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Anandi. Uh, Let me begin by adding my words of welcome to everyone who's here. Uh, In particular, my sincere thanks on behalf of the Institute to our four panelists for joining us to discuss their exciting collaborative work. I also want to thank the AIS staff who put a lot of effort in setting up this uh, particular program. Elise Auerbach, our Director in Chicago, and Purnima Mehta, our Director General in New Delhi. Anandi, of course, who you've already met, who's our wonderful Strategic Initiatives and Project Specialist. And the very special Richa Whipaluri, who's a graduate student at University of Virginia, who's interning with us uh, this semester and really grateful to have her on our team. Now it's my absolute pleasure uh, to briefly introduce the panelists who are uh, uh, going to be uh, presenting their work. So Nima Kudwai is a professor of city and regional planning at the College of Architecture, Art and Planning at Cornell University, where she also serves as Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, as fellow of the Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future, and as member of the faculty advisory board of the South Asia program. Dr. Kudva is also the faculty lead for the Nilgri Field Learning Center. Andrew Wilford is a professor of anthropology at Cornell. Dr. Wilford's work explores aspects of selfhood, identity and subjectivity within a matrix of power and statecraft with some of his latest work in the Nilgiris, highlighting mental health and psychiatry. Pratim Roy is the founder director of the Keystone Foundation, about which we're going to hear more about today. Based in the Nilgiris, and doing a lot of exciting work in the area of environmental justice, he's also uh, he was also a Hubert Humphrey Fellow at Cornell University and an ecologist by training. At Cornell, he was instrumental in floating the idea of the Nilgiri's Field Learning Center. Last but not least, Anita Varghese is the Director of Biodiversity at the Keystone Foundation. She helped establish the Nilgiri Natural History Society and the Western Guards Plant Specialist Group of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. She's been a part of the NFLC since its inception and is one of the course directors. So with that, I turn it over back to Anandi to take us through the next phase.
2: All right, thank you, Sumati, for those introductions for everyone. So, just want to welcome everyone: Nima, Andrew, Pratham, and Anita. Thank you so much for joining us. So, jumping right in, um, I'd love for us to give you. So I'd love for you to give us some context um, about the program. So can you tell us a little bit about the Nilgiri's field learning program and uh, how it intersects with AIS? Um For all of you who are here, thank you
3: and welcome. And thank you so much, Sumati, Anandi, and everyone in AWS, Richa, for making this happen. We're really, truly appreciative of all the help that AWS AI, has given us. Andrew and I have both held research fellowships uh, while we were working in the NFLC, and it was a very crucial source of support for us and continues to be. So, so thank you for that, Punima and her team in Delhi. It was so amazing. Um, going back now, coming back to the Neil Giris, you know, we have a website, so please do it, you know, explore that. It's got a little bit stuck during the pandemic but um, all our work a lot of our work and our students work sort of sits on that website and and you know when we talk about our work that we did together and which started with Pratham coming here as a Humphrey fellow and like you know drumming his way through faculty offices with this idea and this dream that he had um, we really kind of we, we we've been writing about our work together and we think of it as being structured around seven binaries, really across the question of disciplines, right? So transdisciplinarity, where education is as much about research and practice and changing things on the ground. We look at knowledge as being both rooted in scientific rationality and in traditional ecological systems. We consider this, this this binary or the division between the rural and the urban as something that is problematic and we work against it. Um, Andrew will talk much more about the ways in which we think about the health of the body, the health of the mind, the health of the community, and how all of that sort of comes together. We think about diversity in both socio-ecological and, and biodiversity terms. And I think most importantly, we're aiming for, the, for long-term change through through the work of, of education. So both short-term sort of responses to community expressed needs and long-term change um, in, 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 in the ways in which we create as Pratham um, and Anita always say perceptive leaders. I don't need to tell this group where the NFLC is, where the Nilgiris is, but maybe some of you would like to know. It's the red dot on the map there in the Nilgiris district, which is part of the Nilgiris um, Biosphere, which is a much larger region and stretches across three Indian states. Uh, We work primarily with wherever Keystone works. So mostly in, in, you know, parts of Tamil Nadu and, and Kerala. And so who are the learners and the teachers in the Nilgiris, right? This, this community and students that the, the title refers to. The, the learners are all of us. Uh, faculty, a group of faculty from Cornell who started this program and keep it running. Andrew and I represent the, that group. Um, the staff at Keystone who are so integrally sort of, uh, uh, you know, a involved in this and then our students cornell students from any undergraduate major that allows them to go abroad um in at cornell there's we, we have about 14,000, right? Mm-hmm. And young people from the Adivasi communities that that uh, Keystone works with. So this is the core NFLC community. Um, we work together. So collaboration and co-creation are very rooted in the work that we do. And so these sort of images of the classroom are quite common. And you see Anita there with a the group that's just come back from a field trip. This is our first very group that went out. And more recently, last year, a tiny little group mapping the campus. The curriculum is is bilingual and we use sequential translation, it's in Tamil and English. And we run two programs currently, Andrew runs a summer program and and we have a spring semester program that I think is in the the process of winding down a little bit because um, of the ways in which our curriculum is changing here at Cornell. Both programs, there's a first half where we really focus in on context, place, um, various topics, issues, language and culture and learning research methods. And the Keystone campus uh, which is just beautiful you should visit um, is, is the base for that first half of the program. And the second half you go out and do field-based engaged research um, along with So you the students work in pairs along with translators. And so the NFLC classroom then is not just the Keystone campus and that's there's Pratim with his very in this beautiful space, meeting space that they have and here's another another site you know photograph of the campus here but it's also all of the biosphere right we go out a lot and so it's the town it's keystones production and field sites it's hamlets where the communities we work with live and it's it's the entire biosphere and we have something called the nflc bus that anita runs which takes people across and over and it's it's quite wonderful um if you can see the teeny tiny little images on your screens please squint at them because they're quite wonderful um you'll see that this is you know this is the hostel which Keystone has sort of built for all the students who come in this is the view that we have from the hostel tea time in Keystone is sacrosanct and so that becomes a really important part of the rhythm of the day and we work together co-creation like I said and collaboration are so central there are narratives that Keystone has painted of of the place of the you know of ecological understandings and students study those and uh, always there are these field trips that we do and you know you can see there are production landscapes there are uh, landscapes of like wild nature there are agricultural landscapes there are small town landscapes and so we go across all of this. And then in the second half of the semester, of course the students are in the field doing participatory engaged learning. And we always end every every semester, every program with community presentations. Um, I'm gonna just walk you very quickly through two interventions, but you know, I've just chosen Andrew's and mine, uh, which we partner, I partner with, You know, we both partner, even the faculty are twinned and partnered. So we, we work with people. So I work with uh, Anita and Pratim a lot now. Um, Andrew works with Jyoti and Anita, and so on and so forth. And so, here's the community wellness intervention. It started off as a health survey, a real trying to sort of understand how traditional um, systems work and how food sort of works also as medicine, and so on and so forth. And it has, and over the Years, it has also sort of morphed into the training of community health workers, connecting Keystone to Banyan, which is another very well known NGO that does uh, mental health work in Ch- based in Chennai, but has now come into the Nilgiris and so on. Andrew will talk more about this in some detail. Uh, the project that I've been working with is the Water and Waste Project. It's like the urbanization end of our, um, of our story. And we've been building out this project year by year to really begin. To understand how, how um, our focus on waste married together with Keystone's focus, initial focus on water, they moved into waste too now. Um, really, you know, we, we, we've we've catalogued it, we've understood it, and now, of course, are trying to make interventions in the place. Last year, the, the group that was working in in Kotagiri brought together these two streams: wellness and and um you know, waste around this question of wildlife and conflict in peri-urban Kotagiri, and so this is the group of students who was out there, um, and and here's a map of peri of Kotagiri. So that's the yellow line, right? And that green piece over there is a shola forest, along with shola that comes into Kotagiri, and and you know, and Anita has been really trying to work this sort of work through this project of trying to understand human wildlife conflict, and it's a very core part part of what's going on in the region and so we worked in four field sites and this is what the field sites or the villages the hamlets really look like um, and and what we were what the students were doing was a number following a number of research methods to better begin to understand what the problem is what the issues are in the region and so they did trans walks to really understand, you know, invasive species, different kinds of landscapes, birds, animals. Um, They looked at all kinds of basic services, they cataloged things, they interviewed people. And as always, they it to the community at the very end. And so you see these community presentations are really quite fascinating because they involve people coming back together. And sometimes there can be quite a lot of sort of conflict and the students are taken aback when they get challenged. But I think it's quite wonderful because it becomes an opportunity for everybody to understand the work, celebrate the work, respond to the work. So it is, it is part of this process of collaboration and co-creation. And there's always a celebration at the end of it. Um, There's like a you know have wonderful photographs. It's like almost like a mela, right? And then the you know you get little certificates and uh, all of that kind of thing, which is important. It's really important to our community students as well as our Cornell students. I have a little video. We don't need to share it. It was made by the first group that went out there. And if we have time, I'll oops. Oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. Um, we've been cataloging our achievements and, our, and assessing ourselves quite heavily. We can talk more about how we do that every year. And I can walk you through some of that if you're interested. But very briefly, right, we're talking about community and students, which are both so core to this, this program. And I wanted to just show you some some pairs of students and the kinds of things that have happened and so here's Wyatt um, and Montesh, the two young men in the middle with Montesh's family. Uh, Montesh is Toda and he continues and they did a project on wild edibles and could, he continues to actually work uh, with Ke- in collaboration with Keystone on, on thinking through that project and taking it forwards. Here are Cole and Pandi, two people from the first, from the first group. Cole is now working in the New York City Mayor's Office. Pandi was doing two And he has runs, you know, helps run his family's um, small sort of farm. And Cole, during the pandemic, was really kind of disturbed by what he was hearing from India and organized the entire Cornell undergraduate community to collect money to send back to Keystone, who who by then had started to do a lot of um, relief and food distribution work in the community. There's Jayanti, she's sitting over here, also a member of one of our first groups who runs radio. Kotagiri, which is a very important mechanism, an AM radio mechanism, by which we get information, Keystone gets information out into the community. And Radio Kotagiri was quite important, I think, um, as we heard in recordings that we made, um, uh, you know, quite important in getting information out during the pandemic, when India went into a very hasty and very difficult lockdown. Um, you know, Pratham and Anita will talk more, I think, about what happened during the pandemic, but they were very involved. Keystone was very involved in, in relief and distribution efforts in the making of masks and reaching people. And we were sort of, you know, cold through the money effort. Our community students who now work with Keystone were all involved in this. And so here are other students. The one in the middle, I'm blanking on the name, Pratham, Manita, help. Um, I'm blanking on everybody's names right now even yours. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, so here's, you know, so, so, so they were so involved in, in thinking through bringing back certain patterns of cultivation, in distribution of food, in taking health information across and just reaching out to communities. The Adivasi communities of the Nilgiris have a 97% vaccination rate right now, largely because of Keystone's efforts. And so, and the food question was huge. Food insecurity is, massive and became very bad during the pandemic. And so Keystone was quite involved in, 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 you know, sourcing food, packaging it, and reaching out to communities. And our students were part of that effort. And so I just want to say thank you. Tried to do this very fast. And I know Anandi and Richa have a bunch of questions organized for us. So I'll turn it back over to you, Anandi, Richa.
2: Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Nima. Um, And these questions are all just kind of for everyone, and so um, you know, jump in as it's not directed uh, to anyone in particular. You know, I'm I'm kind of curious. Thank you for laying out um, the brilliant work that these students have been able to do and the different forms that it's taken. I have so many questions, but to stick to to, uh, some of the, the foundational questions, so we can understand a little bit more about the program why choose the focus of pairing students with the indigenous community members and not, and, and you mentioned that faculty do pair with other kind of faculty there, but uh, why, why focus on the student portion of the, of the program as opposed to a faculty focused program or you know a, a graduate student researcher focused program?
3: Who wants to go? You know, you know, I'm always ready to jump in. You don't want me to be talking all the time. <laughs> Andrew, You go ahead.
4: You go ahead. Neema.
3: Why? You're fearless leader? Okay. <laughs> Andrew, do you? you know, um, Anandi, I think part of it is what Pratim and, you know, what all our Keystone colleagues always talk about, which is this business of our time span, right? We're really interested in... The long legacy. I think Keystone's always interested in the long legacy. And so, so part of this in terms of creating an educational program is what we, when we first started this, when Pratim first came here, his question always was to us was, can you teach differently? Right? And so, so that was where we started. Can we teach differently? We knew we had to cross those seven binaries or more, right? I mean, those are the seven that we've landed on in a way, but we knew we had to cross those. Um, I have a long-standing interest in both pedagogical structures and in um, indigenous community. I worked in sort of the Southern part of Karnataka for my dissertation, looking at indigenous communities there. And so I had that long-standing interest. Keystone started its work with, with the Honey Hunters, right? Of the Nilgiris. And so their core work has always been with, with The indigenous communities. So I think it's a combination of the strengths that Keystone brought, the strengths that Andrew, myself and our other colleagues brought. It's centered around sustainability, right? It's really centered around sustainability. And then that's how we brought it. So we do have faculty exchanges. I mean, all of us. You know, we've, they've come to Cornell. We go there. We have faculty exchanges. Other Keystone staff have come here for, I don't trainings is a weird word, but to to work together. Um, we have doctoral students who go. I have one right now who works in the Nilgiris. We have master's students who've gone on short-term internships. So we do have other people, but our organized programming is very much to do with undergraduates. And I think the other piece of why we've stuck with just this pair, Cornell students and in indigenous communities, is Keystone has a tribal council that we have to get permission from to work in, right? Uh, to work in the region. And they were very clear that they wanted only their kids and, and others, that their kids had to be centered because otherwise um, the community gets marginalized all the time. And so it's our commitment to the community and to the place to center our, the young people from the, uh, from the communities Keystone works with. Andrew, Pratem, I don't know if you want to add something.
5: Uh, I, I guess just very briefly. I mean, one of the things that I've learned being a part of this program and working with Anita Pratim and, and several other colleagues there uh, is that we need to disabuse ourselves and our students of some of our disciplinary knowledge. And Anita's mm-hmm. already hinted at these binaries. And you know, this has been a very eye-opening experience this last decade for me, working collaboratively and learning how these communities possess tremendous local knowledge um, and are good environmental uh, stewards. And for example, with climate change, which may be another area we touch on, the sort of climate resilient uh, horticultural knowledge that these communities possess is is incredibly valuable. But we, of course, also have to disabuse our students that they're coming in as as experts. They're coming in to learn from their age peers uh, about things. And of course, training future leaders in the community as Nima just pointed to is very central to this. So I think, you know, from our perspective, it's, it's very important that an international immersion experience for our students isn't one where they go in with a silo mentality and sort of carry all that baggage with them, but are truly immersed and are transformed. And so the pedagogy that (laughs) Nima and I worked on, Nima in particular worked quite hard on in the beginning was exercises that, that, level the playing field. So learning exercises in which neither group would have a distinct advantage. And if any group had an advantage in these learning exercises, it might be the community that's closer to home, the Indigenous community member students.
3: Well, you know, the students dubbed them very early on as crossing boundary exercises. So for all of us now, we use the shorthand CBE, but it's it's a quite a critical part of the I don't know technologies of learning if you want to call that call it that Anambi.
2: So there are so many words here that I was noticing, um, uh, Nima. In your one of your slides, um, you had kind of this Venn these Venn diagrams, overlapping forms of knowledge. There was the traditional ecolog- ecological knowledge, and of course we're using terms sustainability and and health, and of course climate change and all of these words. And then just what. Um, uh, Uh, just as Andrew was saying, the the change in in disciplinary knowledge that you're hoping to kind of elicit um, in the students going over. And all of that kind of, uh, it just brings me to the uh, kind of a follow-up question about where the students are meeting the other students, you know, in this moment of of literal translation of language, but also of concepts, of of ways of thinking, of ways of observing. Um, Just the, the, the vocabulary, even just wh- the point of views that we're using at these intersections, um, you know. So, are there is there is there an observable kind of moment of translation at the intersection of the student understanding the different student understandings of, of global phenomena like climate change and, and and health, coming from a U.S. standpoint, and then that from the indigenous mm-hmm. communities. But also, as I'm as I'm phrasing that, I'm saying terms as if they're separate you know, mm-hmm. and health is somehow separate from sustainability and development or something like that. And even Nima, as you were introducing some of the projects, it was obvious that there was not a separation and that we kind of use terms from our disciplinary backgrounds yeah. as separate silos. Uh, so I'm wondering kind of what you've observed around these kind of moments of translation and, and disruption of conceptual knowledge.
4: I, I, I think Anindi, that's that's really the central part of NFLC when, the, when they meet here. And uh, what happens is uh, Cornell does uh, an orientation before they, they land up here. They do a Tamil course and uh, they go through an orientation, a rigorous orientation by Nima, Andrew and the, and the others uh, of what to expect and what kind of a cultural shock or, uh, or experience that they have to experience and we also at this end when we select the cohort of uh, adivasi leaders we also we go through a little bit of an english c- class with them and generally a little bit of an orientation but we also don't want to prep them too much because we just want to see how the whole interaction happens so it's a bit like petri dish you know it's it's a it's a large petri dish where you just see how these two things completely map Merge and marinate. And that's the beauty of this course because one thing is happening in the classroom and one thing that's where they live together in the campus. And that happens and the kind of learning that happens mm-hmm. there, their, their cultures, their food habits, their relationships, their views of the world. And that's like an unstoppable thing. And by the time the next day happens, you'll almost see that there's a step has been taken again you know, and it's 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 a thing which you have just unraveled, you've just facilitated this whole thing between both these uh, groups of people. Mm-hmm. And by the end of 15 weeks, or by the end of six to eight weeks, whichever the course is, you see uh, something new happening out there, and going to the field. And you see, uh, the 30 year work that we have been doing here, uh, we uh, realized that our major Uh, uh, client or the major people whom we work with are indigenous people, our knowledge stems from them, our learning and de-learning stems from them. So we want to kind of create this experience to these students. And that happens uh, very, very serendipitously, very uh, interesting way. It just happens Mm -hmm. that transition takes place very creatively sometimes. So you can plan a lot of things but when you see these two groups meet and interact in a classroom, something else happens. Uh, Anita, please. Yeah.
6: yeah, so, you know, taking forward from what Pratim said, also that a lot of things for us that um, we didn't expect happen also. For instance, um, um, you know, when students come in from Cornell and you have a notion of what, an Adivasi student knows about and how an Adivasi student wants to portray their life. And you know, the the time I think we do these role plays to tell each other about each other's lives. And believe it or not, like every, um, now it's eight batches. And the one thing that really, at the end of those role plays that comes out is how there's such a sense of community in one set of students and how it's a very nuclear, individual driven kind of family so I mean and it's just an understanding that bridges are built like that it's not to start by saying yours is better or mine is better mm-hmm. it's this whole mm-hmm. bridges that get you know these connections that start from themselves also and you know the one time we had we said we talked about uh, I think it was yeah one of the students in the first batch talking about his um, when he drives through the forest what does he do when he sees an elephant and He actually enacted a scene where he gets off, takes out a cell phone, and takes a photo of the elephant. (laughs) And you know, all of us were expecting like he would use some elephant whispering words to calm (laughs) the elephant down. But no, 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 he wasn't doing that. He was going to take out his cell phone and shoot.
3: A good picture of the elephant. So and then run away, remember Anita? He then <laughs> yeah. turned and ran away. And yeah. which which was also very instructive. And all our the Cornell lot was all like, what? what is he doing? <laughs>
6: yeah, where's all this magic of traditional knowledge with which you're supposed to calm the elephant or something like that? Anyway. So I think those bridges, it's there's not a lot of planning, but then there is a lot of um what should there is a lot of um you you need to what we have these debriefs at the end of the day, at the end of the week, there's a lot of unpacking. There's a lot of disentangling. There's a lot of discussion that needs to be um, part of the daily routine. And I think Hmm. that helps people uh, on both sides, on three sides, even with us, with us running the program for us to understand uh, these are sessions that help build That interdisciplinarity. I mean, it's very easy to talk about interdisciplinarity. We all want to do it, and we all think we can do it. But um, running this program, we've understood what it takes,
2: Mm.
6: and uh, I think that's something that I just want to chip in. Mm. And you know, when we and we're talking about um, um, sorry, ideas, climate change, traditional knowledge. And what about gender? Like when we throw gender into the classroom. Mm. Oh my god it's like you know how we see it from uh a, the sort of organized discipline of university and academic academia and how communities who live it see it so it's it was a very fascinating conversations i find the ones on gender most um mm-hmm. challenging and yeah, um, yeah. i learned a lot in those sessions
3: yeah yeah so yeah yeah you know andy you uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of de-schooling that we have to do. And Anita talked about these debriefs, right? And again, going back to like our pedagogical methods, which we've evolved, you know, together by learning how to do it, right? And so the days have very clear rhythms. The week has a rhythm, the semester or eight-week program. So we're very, very... um, There are certain routines that we really hold to and we've designed certain pieces. So these crossing boundary exercises, they sound kind of silly when they said talked about like that but they're central to breaking down the boundaries actually because we do language learning, vocabulary, thematic learning, it's contextualized and it brings in lived experience. So they are one-hour exercises that are scripted almost by the line um and you know and AWS actually was you know was uh, supposed to be work we were supposed to work with the Tamil teachers from AWS to set to get, put together these textbooks for our program and others who want to do programs like ours and then of course the pandemic came and so that sort of upended everything but we're back that grant is still there with us we just renewed it so we're going to go back to working on it and so so those exercises are quite central we and we do that three times a week in the first half of the semester and then what Anita was talking about these debriefs we have they can be ex Explosive, you can, you never know what to expect. Um, we, but this the, the kind of learning that happens there, and I think for all of us, that's the important piece, right? We always mm-hmm. talk about every person at the NFLC is a learner. And so what Andrew was talking about. So those distinctions, sure, we might be leading the conversation and facilitating the conversation. But we learn as much, and it's you know we bring it back into our classrooms here. I know Pratham and Anita have you know it's in, it's infiltrated the work they do over there, and so it's a it's a, that those debriefs become also quite central, and we run them very often in the first couple of weeks, and then it starts to slow down, and by the time we reach the research phase, we're doing them once a week. No Anita, yeah, about, and we do them with everybody. And then we also have debriefs where we separate out the Cornell and the Adivasi kids because their challenges are very different. So we both like subgroups and the whole group.
2: One thing that I noted in what Anita said um, was that fantastic example of the elephant whispering mm-hmm. um, expectations I would say um, of the Cornell students coming in and kind of expecting this way that knowledge is formed and framed and enacted and performed and all of this. And myself is being trained as an ethnographer using media um, and talking about co-creation and collaborative ways of doing media-based ethnography. There's all these kind of assumptions that you bring in and you bring to the table about what even is media and how are we even defining this. And so kind of thinking about like methods here a little bit. And Angie, this uh, this question um, uh, is for you primarily based on your program. You know, what, um, so you led the six, six week uh, summer program this year, focusing on the pandemic and using this ethnographic framework for the students. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what did ethnography look like in the collaborative framework? Like how, um, you know, mentioning this, like, de-learning and learning and 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 all these debriefs around this, and some kind of wondering how this methodology umbrella of ethnography came into this, you know, what, and, and what conclusions did the students reach, both sets of students, at the end of this, around these concepts that are, you know, overlapping, but somehow separate of, of health and well-being and community?
5: Yeah, it's a big question. Um, I just wanted to add one little thing to the previous comments, which is at the end of this, um, any session, whether it's the summer or the spring, there are a lot of tears shed and they're happy tears um, of how close the cohorts have become. So I, I want to underscore, despite all the struggles and issues that we work through, the there is real friendship and bonding that continues. And the students from Cornell continue to be in touch with Um, The Keystone students and Keystone alumni, Um, and of course we've we've produced publications in which Keystone students have also done that. And as far as the um, the uh, border cross the whatever we want to call them the border crossing crossing border (laughs) crossing border, Um, (laughs) they never wanted to do it in the beginning. They were like pulling their to get them to actually do it, but they don't want to stop once they start doing it. It's like we said, no, time's up. You need to share now with everyone because they've broken up into smaller groups when they do it. Everyone is reluctant to engage in that kind of exercise, but they once they start, they don't want to stop. So um, there really is... Um, Kind of an immersive, almost like camp like atmosphere that begins early morning and ends late at night with our cohorts in either program. It's, it's the hardest units they've ever earned, but the most fulfilling, I think. Um, as far as ethnography, um, that's always been central for the 10 years that I've worked with Keystone. Uh, my charge was always from the very beginning to look at challenges uh, affecting, impacting well being within communities. Uh, Around a host of issues. But with the summer program that focuses more specifically on health, uh, we looked at, at we use ethnography to look at three main areas. We looked at health systems in the area uh, by interviewing and holding focus group discussions with doctors, nurses, primary health center workers, and ASHA workers. Um, and we really looked then in one project. Second project was to look at challenges faced by the community health workers that Keystone itself has trained. And I'm happy to say we have 20, over 20 now. So that community health program, which began about a decade ago, has really become robust and it plays a very important role within the community. And the community health workers themselves were um instructed in a way to be the frontline ethnographers of their own communities. So ethnography became part of their own methodology in a way. And we continue to work on scaling up those types of skills and learning uh, from what they observe. But um, in terms of our student projects this summer, we did shadow the community health workers, uh, the group that worked with them and interviewed the community health workers. And we had a focus group discussion with all the community health workers. And then the third piece was looking at traditional healing and traditional medicine, uh, specifically within the Irula and Kurumba communities, which are the two communities that uh, we work most closely with in the well in the well-being program or wellness programs. Um, and that's also been a long interest in this in this uh, program to do a kind of knowledge sharing with traditional healers, and this involves both ritual knowledge, but also pachemaranda or the green medicine of the forest that they increasingly have trouble accessing, but is very, very critical to to their feelings of well-being. Uh, and so these three pieces kind of captured a lot of the local health practices more generally in the area. And specifically this summer, uh, looking at these three perspectives, the health workers, the healers, and the health systems in the area, the biomedical health systems, we wanted to understand that the sort of impact of the pandemic at these three levels and how all three components were, were attempting to meet that challenge of the pandemic. And so there were, as mentioned, significant challenges that the lockdowns caused um, and that the NGO in particular Keystone played a key role in disseminating information, PPE, food and medicine, uh, as Nima had pointed out in her slides. Um, But we also found, and this is where ethnography proved very useful, that where there is resilience, where there is a capacity to aspire and hope, it's grounded in cultural and spiritual traditions that you can't access in any other way. And the healers play a very important role and continue to play a very important role in that, even though they are few in number and dwindling, and this is a big concern. So part of what we wanted to do is also Capture as much as we can, much of it's inalienable knowledge and can't be written down, but some of it can be written down. And the healers have sort of changed over the years, recognizing their own vulnerability and dwindling numbers. They've also learned to adapt and work with Keystone and us to document some of, um, at least the green medicines that they've practiced, but also we've, we've tried in ways to, to revitalize, um, the practice by, by giving some, um, small grants to the training of traditional healers. It's very hard to recruit new traditional healers given the, the new kind of demand for wages. So the challenges are very serious and you know the the loss of traditional medicine and healing practices we found uh, in in terms of what we discovered this summer. Uh, is potentially leaving local communities without a really important source of orientation and meaning in the midst of really dramatic socioeconomic and ecological changes. Dietary changes in particular, uh, linked to changing cultivation patterns or the lack thereof, um, is really critical. And with cultivation being lost in many contexts, there were important rituals that bound the community together and offerings to the ancestors that came through these rituals that were directly tied to cultivation within sacred groves and lands around uh, community properties. So there is a kind of domino effect. And when one is impacted, it leaves people vulnerable to, for example, malevolent forces, which we increasingly have documented. These are spiritually malevolent beings uh, or sorcery. So in particular, people have spoken a lot in the research about uh, the paralysis caused by the od, which is a kind of supernatural entity of the forest uh, that has turned malevolent. And we maybe can talk about it <laughs> another time. But more generally, sorcery accusations seem to be rife, and the sorcery accusations in the community that are alarming speak to a broken reciprocity uh, between uh, between individuals in the community relationships with the ancestors that are so paramount to indigenous worldview with animals, as has been mentioned, and the forest. I mean, there really were views that things were much more symbiotic and and that there was these reciprocities in a substance, kind of a substantist worldview were all interlinked. And there is that sort of domino effect where these things are sort of collapsing in some way. And so loss of cultivation has led to cultural and ritual loss, which in turn is producing a kind of existential Anxiety, which in turn produces health consequences, uh, particularly mental health, but these then present as as physiological distress, uh, weakness, paralysis, um, and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of affliction there. So I could go on more and more, but um, uh, that's part of it. And if if there's time later, we can talk about the the sort of infrastructure that's lacking in the biomedical domain um, and, you know, where the gap what we've seen is a kind of gap. There's a sort of an absence of biomedical care in a very robust way uh, present in the community on the one hand that needs to be scaled up. And on the other hand, there is this sort of threat to traditional medicine, which is the primary care for many, many people. So there's a kind of gap that's open between an absence of the one and a declining of the other. And so trying to suture that gap in particular through the community well-being program is to train community health workers from the community to give them some biomedical training, but then to also offer them as the bridge so that communities that do need uh, biomedical care can access it, know where to go, but also can understand the biomedical treatment that they're receiving, which they largely find alienating and, and not particularly conducive to um to their own well-being so we have collected numerous stories of people going to hospitals and, and running away yeah. because they find mm-hmm. it so alienating stigmatizing and so on and so forth that's in brief but we can come back in Q a to some of these
3: yeah. questions. I mean, you know, just to add to it, I mean, the ethnography as ethnography as a method doesn't remain just with the groups Andrew's working with, right? I think that's the important part to really begin to understand that that week where, we, you know, where the students are really engaging questions of Indigenous worldviews, um, they're doing these crossing boundary exercises, they're um, thinking through questions, they're thinking through ethnography as a method, and those of us who instruct or facilitate the the, the learning, you know, when we design our week of work together, right, in partnerships, so Anita and I are doing something together, we, we, you know, we do a very kind of we pick up the breadcrumbs that somebody has dropped before us, right, the week before us, and we drop breadcrumbs for the people coming the week after us. So ethnography is a method starts to run through, right? Other ways, other other topical questions that we're looking at, or so it's not just thematic questions. So water is running through all of this, you know. Um, landscapes are running through all of this. The people, of course, everything is embodied, but also the method starts to then work across. And I think that's actually a really important part um, of how we work, also, right? So when we're doing community health, there's all this ethnographic work that. That Andrew's talking about. There's also a community survey. There's also really thinking through what that community health center looks like and what does it mean as a basic service. So, it's how Keystone works in a way that we're trying to mimic. And I think Keystone is is also shifting. And so it's um, it's interesting, actually, a lot of learning.
2: Yeah, there's there's so much about you know, the, the outcomes and of this ethnography. And I love the way thinking about that is ethnography, like the methods is like water kind of flowing through and affecting other pieces. That's, there's, I could do much more with that. I think we had time, but but thinking about, you know, obvious, you know, outcomes and, and, um, and consequences of the work there, the program, you know, in India, and then the students come back though, so the Cornell students, you know, they come back. Um, and then the students there, they go back, you know, after the program, thinking what happens with the student knowledge after the program, and, and thinking um, you know, Andrew mentioned something of, of training of, of um, students from the indigenous community and, and what that kind of can lead them to. Um, but I'm cur- curious, you know, the Cornell students, if um, what happens with this study abroad experience and knowledge do you find that that impacts their career paths or is this a study abroad moment you know and then they go back to their regularly scheduled world of physics or whatever it is um and then you know for for those um other interlocutors and colleagues who, who come to work with you in the program um you know does does your work here um you know have outcomes you know research wise and connection networking wise that you know, applicable to other communities of the global South, even. Do you want to start, Andrew? <laughs> uh,
5: well, I, I'll try to be briefer, but um, I, I would like to hear more from my colleagues at Keystone on this front too. But yes, our Cornell students have gone on and, and published much of their work. Most of our students are not from <laughs> physics; they're they're from the social sciences or uh, pre med, and you know, they're very interested in, in sort of public health or. Um, environmental governance types of issues as well, or city and regional planning, uh, anthropology. Um, and so many have done honors theses and articles and have gone on and are now in, in graduate school. Uh, Nima mentioned some who have you know, continued to stay in touch and, and work uh, like raising funds and, and being part of the recruitment effort for the next uh, cohort. But yes, absolutely. I think the the students have described it to us as a life-changing experience, and has shaped their views uh, moving forward. Um, in terms of the, the kind of collaborations that happen at the on the Indian side as well, I think the, um, for example, this summer we brought students from Keystone Indigenous Community students to Chennai, where they worked with uh, the Banyan, which was mentioned earlier, another NGO that focuses on health and well-being. And they were exposed to other indigenous communities in the Chennai region. And they were very excited about knowledge sharing experiences uh, with other communities and had not been able to have these kinds of encounters Mm. before. So I think, you know, the kind of lateral movement and connections between Keystone and other organizations um, within India is equally critical uh, in terms of, you know, building a kind of network of knowledge sharing at the grassroots level, and of course, at the organizational level as well. So I think these consortiums are, are sort of organic and, you know, Pratim and Anita have built a vast network in India of colleagues. And so, you know, this is really yeah. something I've learned through interacting with them. It's changed my thinking about how knowledge should be disseminated and democratized.
3: I mean, I could just add a little bit to that, um, Anandi, you know, so, so, I mean, there's also Sneha and Matthew who are not here on the call, who are Pratham's co-founders, who are also very central to, I think, that the way this network sort of starts to get expressed, but, you know, there's enough, I mean, we can, like I said, we've been documenting very carefully and assessing, uh, which we keep folding back into what we do with the program, but, you um, but you know, there's other 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 things that have happened. So, for example, um, Pratham and I, together with um, colleagues of ours in Malawi and Tanzania. So, there's Rachel Besnaker, who's an agroecologist here at Cornell, and Stacey Langwick, a medical anthropologist colleague of, of Andrews, also at Cornell, they have been having these 30, 20, 30-year-long 30 collaborations, one in Malawi, one in Tanzania, and, and then ours, right? And so Pratim and a group of people from, Anita was also there, a group of people from um, Keystone, we met their collaborators and them, and we came together in Mysore in India for one meeting, and then in Italy, actually, we went to the Slow Food um, festival and presented there. And so so different, and then they came to uh, to Cornell, and we've spent like 10 days together here. And so there are different, and you know, we call it the ecological learning collaboratory, right? Um, and so 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 those kinds of collaborations are also a part of what we've been doing, where we bring together different groups from the south. And so that was really the Indian Ocean group, right? East Africa and and um, and India and I know that the groups in Malawi and Tanzania that that Rachel and Stacy work with, um, again the pandemic interrupted that conversation. Are really keen to learn from Keystone. So there's there's a the the connections don't always just work in how we think it's going to work, right? They are most interested in Keystone, not in any of us here at Cornell, which is the way it should be. And so it's a it's a different. It's a different set of um, because you know there's so much more learning that's happening on the ground. So I think there are multiple kinds of pathways that open up. Some we design deliberately and facilitate and structure by the very kinds of exercises and technologies we've been describing, right? The rhythms we establish and so on. And some open up like the Tanzania Malawi India connection that. We, we, we jump-started it in some ways, but it's taken a completely different form.
2: That's yeah, fantastic to think about, just all of the kind of organic ways that what you're doing is kind of, it takes its own life after the actual program. So you've set up some structures, and then there's so many points that are coming together here, this uh, group, two different groups of students, and then their own discipline in- disciplinary trainings that are coming into this but also what those disciplines are gaining out of this and it's fantastic to know that the students are actually creating changes within their own communities from that whether it's publishing papers on the Cornell side or kind of being a next generation of of healers with this kind of a new form of knowledge and there was one you know there's at some point and I forgot who mentioned it but it was you know all of these things coming together unlearning Learning changes and disrupting knowledge, and then at the end of that, there's this something new that's coming out of it. It's not we're just redoing a discipline or something like that, or we're rehashing, you know, this other forms of knowledge that we're coming in our expectations. But at the end of this whole uh, point of interaction, this something new is actually coming out of it for all it seems that's in, that are that are involved. Um, and so, this question is for uh, kind of wrapping up as you do with kind of our, our podcasts and events, um, thinking about the future of, of the program. Um, and I'd love to hear from everyone here. What are your thoughts of the future of this program? What would you love to see happen or things that are you're planning for hoping for? Um, yeah, I'd love just to get a sense of, of what's next. Let them use that.
5: Yeah.
4: I think, uh... You know, the fact that like Neema mentioned at the beginning, it's getting more and more difficult for uh, students to come during spring because spring to us is a much more tougher uh, course. It's 15 weeks and uh, nobody wants to leave the US at that time. So there's somewhere the preference is now working towards summer. But we need to adapt to the current changes. I think one thing to realize is a program like the NFLP is not meant for everybody, but we have to be able to try and broad base it to the maximum number of people, and uh, really, uh, you know, mainstream excellence. Let me put it that way. That and then try and get the real, uh, real people who will uh, stick on to that boat, uh, because uh, what they go through is a very intensive thing. And it's highly committed people from Cornell, highly committed people from uh, Keystone who, who look at this uh, six weeks or 15 weeks as just a small part, which they keep playing for a long, long time. And that has a very major change. So what I would like to see in the future is we continue this in much more depth and much more analysis. And, uh, Like Andrew says, how do you democratize knowledge and how do you democratize innovation? How do you mainstream excellence? And how do you make sure that there are different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of nuances of insights? How do you capture all that together instead of homogenizing in the way that you are trained to look at excellence or innovation or traditional knowledge? And I think we are... Touching on those kind of cusps of new knowledge and new thresholds with this interaction. And the last decade has shown us some pathways. I would like to go into much more depth and uh, really uh, cast the net wide, but uh, be sure that we would get not many people. But I'm ready to uh, make
3: an attempt to make it as broad based as possible. Anandi, we talked about, you know, in um, last spring. For the first time, you know, we went out back to India and visited and all that. Andrew went, and I went. Um, we've started these conversations, all of us together, on NFLC 2.0. What is that new? You know, we It's a decade is a long time, right? We've been working together very intensely, experimenting with different things. Our students use the language of transformative when they talk to us about the program. Like i said we you know, all the ethnographic method has entered our assessment quite deeply and so yes, we've got you know dreams of materials but but the 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 2.0 that pratim is sort of you know talking about imagines different expanding the groups of people so we're not just sticking with the cornell Adivasi or, you know, community student pair, but really bringing in more sort of elite folks in the Nilgiris, elite Indian students who are curious about the program. We get a lot of inquiries from other in in the Indian institutions wanting to bring some of these methods into what they're doing. All of it, it sort of addresses this mainstreaming question that Pratim is talking about. But, you know, but for those of us who've been in the kind of working this right on the ground, uh, I don't think people quite grasp the amount of effort something like this takes. Um, this the, the de-learning and the de-schooling is enormously intensive, time and effort intensive. And people don't always grasp it. They think it's one and yet another method that you learn and move on. Here's my skill set, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> it's not a skill set. It's something much deeper than that. And so, You know, our our idea is to, um, some of the things that we've talked about is smaller modules, which will bring together visitors to the Nilgiris, right? Even so they get a sense of the complexity of the place and get away from their tourist kind of perspective. Longer modules, like the ones we've been running all these years, but with different groups of people, Um, creating the Southern connections much more strongly. That's something that's come up as well. So I think there are many, many opportunities, um, but we know how intensive the work, the intensity the work requires. and the need for funding models that'll actually allow us to do this work. It's you know, we haven't talked about that at all, but for all of us, that's been so central. I mean, the the financial and resource models that we've had to invent, right? Because our community students, we need to pay them stipends, we need to pay their families, lost wages. There's a there's a lot that goes into a program like this. And so, um yeah, so we you know, we're optimistic um about what comes next, but then Smiling. he's the he's the chap who holds all the optimism for the rest of us and keeps us going. but um you know and and we enjoy so much learning, I think, all of us, like Andrew said, right it's a lifelong learning opportunity, right? Yeah, yeah. The,
5: the finding piece is really critical, but it's also one that we keep at arm's distance at times. And what I mean by that is uh, we could easily scale up a big health intervention mm-hmm. uh, but and, and get a big grant, but that's sort of moving against the philosophy of sort of an organically slow-moving process that's more participatory, that's more consultative with local communities, that is more grounded in the culture and values and environmental knowledge that's specific to community so we're not interested in cookie cutter big assessments where you would bring in a big NIH grant or NIMH or Wellcome Trust. We've always sort of pushed back on that. And when we talk about this being a decade process, it's because we've run the program maybe eight years, but it was two years of careful thinking and planning, working with Pratima, Anita, and others at Keystone and with other Cornell colleagues, not just on the funding pieces to make it work, but really sort of mapping out what our goals were and what our pedagogical and research foci would be. And that was a lot of, a lot of thought went into that. And so that these sort of moments of thinking about 2.0 and what's next, we're in no, I guess we're in no rush, uh, I feel, to like implement a new model and and just run with it. We're we're very consultative and democratic within the NFLP. NFLC became NFLP uh, this past year, I guess. Uh, It was just a Cornell decision to rename, not Nima and myself. I think it was a from on high. But if there was confusion among listeners why we're talking about NFLC, well, that was the name we had up until very recently. Um, And then it just was changed. But yeah, this sort of slowness and, and letting things marinate on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, you know, knowing that there are real significant challenges that do need to be addressed uh, at the grassroots level. So there's, there is a kind of tension between wanting mm. to things that are necessary uh, when we address community distress in particular. Uh, you know, there was this sense of we need to do something. There is a lot of community distress, but how to go about it. You know, it's not going to make sense to bring in an army of psychiatrists and and medicalize and give people tablets. That's really not going to enhance community well-being, given these domino effect of social, ecological, livelihood, um, toxicity, climate change. All of these things are so interrelated. So just, you know, passing out pills is no solution. So I think moving forward, I want to continue the collaborative, democratic and, and kind of slow moving part of this rather than try to make NFLP some very large endeavor, which brings in 50 students a year and has people traipsing around um, and overstaying our welcome. Um, I want to mention one other thing really quick, and that is there's a lot of kind of grassroots activism in South India and Tamil Nadu right now, and a lot of it is actually inspired by things like cinema, uh, by media. There are a lot of films that are now uh, and always have been, but now there have been some very popular films, sort of speaking to the distress and rights issues of indigenous communities, and so this is galvanizing a sense of momentum at uh, the community level, but also, you know, among good uh, district collectors who are working progressively with communities in some instances, and with some more progressive panchayats as well, who are, who are actually doing good work for the dalit and nadivasi side, um, and of course there are obstacles and recalcitrant forces out there as well, but there has been a kind of media swell of progressive cinema, I would argue, that's been very invigorating. The film Jai Bim, for example, which Mm. was quite a popular film. Everyone has seen it in the Nilgiris. Everyone has seen it in the Chennai indigenous communities where the film was based.
3: We keep hearing the language of the speed of trust, move at the speed of trust.
6: No, I think, you know, uh, one of the things, so, I mean, looking to the future, I think this whole program has created a a deep interest in the Indigenous youth of this area. There's a sort of um, thing that people are looking forward to, you know, from a time when we used to get five applications, closely to at least 35, 40 applications for those two or three seats that we have available. So, this interest for um, a sort of perceptive learning, a deeper learning. Um, you know that's pretty quite high from the community so for me for the future I would really like to see how we could um, continue to provide that kind of uh, mm. um, yeah, sort of curriculum based or a, a leadership courses things that we could offer to communities and uh, you know just even looking at for instance what the NFLC alumni mean for us a keystone. So, when we have like smaller research projects, recently there was one uh, to write about the COVID experiences, a diary keeping project. And it's the NFLC alumni like Janti who are leading those projects. There's a smaller uh, grant that we have to look at education initiatives in the Neelgiris. And again, the NFLC alumni have come together in a doing this little baseline research to just find out what's the status of primary and middle education in the Nilgiris. And there isn't a document like that available. So it's a very powerful idea for us right now that these kind of documents are going to come out from within the community. It's it's going to be people who have been trained and who will be taking this up to, you know, one day I'm sure, I'm very hopeful that they will write about the health of their communities. They will write about the education of their community. So this kind of an initiative, I I think it should go to more places and more communities across India,
0: perhaps. Well, that's our time for today. A grateful thank you to Nima Kudva, Andrew Wilford, Pratim Roy, and Anita Vargas. And thank you for listening. For more information on all of the American Institute of Indian Studies programs and fellowships, visit www.indiastudies.org.